Well, uh, good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Good to be with you. Uh, man, my daughter Emma, she is real excited about kids' church starting. So really glad for that. Um, just trust that that'll be good for our kids as we help teach them how to love Jesus and follow him and know about him. So, Also, just really excited about my friend Michael and what God's up to at uh, Eastside Church in Madison. And, and uh, like Michael said in that video, Michael had done some preaching coaching with me. And so if you've benefited from God's teaching through... Uh, through me, then that's from him as well. And so just grateful for all the ways that we get to partner and join together with other churches. And, and like uh, Becky said, our, our heart at River City is really that we'd be a church that plants more churches because we really believe that people are reached for the sake of the gospel through the planting of new churches. So anyway, so we're excited about all those things. Um, uh, this morning as well, we are continuing on in a series we just started last week, uh, going through the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. And so last week we began that series, and I said I was really excited about teaching through that series and this, this chunk of chapters in the early part of Genesis, uh, because these chapters are incredibly foundational for our faith. But one of the things I tried to highlight last week is that they're foundational for reasons that maybe you might not expect see, as we began our study last week, what we said is that Genesis is so foundational, not because it answers the, the scientific how questions about the beginnings of creation, but rather because it answers the questions about the who and the why of creation. It tells us about who God is. It tells us about what he's like. It reveals his nature and his character to us. And we said, you see, all the Bible is really about God. It's God's revelation of himself to us so that we might know him. And so understanding who God is and why he created us and why he created the world, that radically changes how we live and act and how we relate to one another. There are really incredibly foundational things that come out of that. You see, the, the how of creation is really interesting, but the who and the why, those are the transformative parts of creation because they have everything to do with showing us our identity and our purpose. And so that doesn't mean, like I said last week, it doesn't mean the how questions about creation don't matter or that they're not important. It just means that they're not the most important. It means that they're not the most important things. And if we're focused on the how questions, we're going to miss the more important questions of the who and the why. But the honest truth is that all of us have questions about the how of creation, we all have questions about that, and that's normal and natural. How was the world made? Where did it all come from? How did that happen? What about evolution and science and all those kinds of things? Were, did God really create the earth in six literal days, or were those six days, were they just kind of vague markers of time? Is the earth really old, or is the earth pretty young? What about the blasted dinosaurs? I mean, what happened? And while the answers to these questions are not the point of Genesis chapter 1, they are important for us as Christians to think critically about, how, we, especially how we answer those questions. God does not want us to be just mindless worshipers. God wants worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, who use our head and our hearts and our hands and our minds as well to love and serve and worship Jesus. And so as we study this morning... My goal is to show you that while our answers to the questions about the how of creation do matter, most of the specifics about that are not hills that are worth dying on. Most of the specifics about how we answer the how questions are not hills that are worth dying on. Instead, my heart is that as we study what you'll see and be encouraged by is not that we have all of the answers to the how of creation, but that we have a much more clear and sure and confident place to rest our faith, and that's the person and the work of Jesus who perfectly reveals and proves the character and the nature of God. 
And so with that in mind, let's pray this morning, and we'll dive into our study together. Jesus, thank you for you. Thank you for your word. God, we are grateful to get a chance to study together this morning and to be together. And God, we just, uh, God, this morning's a challenging topic to talk about. It's nuanced and detailed, and there's so much variance in it. And so, God, I just, just especially need your spirit to fill me this morning as I would teach. And God, I pray that as our, our time together, that it would be good for us, that it would in, help to inform especially our tone and our posture as we think about these things and as we think about you know, relating with others along, uh, around these topics. But also, God, I pray that it would just help us to, in, to grow in our love for you, to grow in our love for, for others, that they might come to know you, God, and I pray that it would grow our confidence in you. I pray these things in your good and gracious name, God. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to raise my stand up just a hair here. All right, better. Thank you. So before we, be, uh, before we dive in this morning, I just want to acknowledge a few things. One, this morning is kind of a little bit of an odd morning here at River City Church, I guess when it comes to the content of our sermon. Last week we began our series in Genesis 1, and we studied through the passage, Genesis chapter 1, 1 verses 2, 3, and this morning is kind of a part 2 to that, and so uh, we're not going to be studying uh, those verses all over again, but the content of our time together is going to be in reference to those verses. Next week we'll continue picking back right up, uh, we believe we're in the end of Genesis chapter 1, some of Genesis chapter 2 next week, but just a heads up about that. This week is a little bit kind of a, of a, of a unique sermon this week. Additionally, as we begin, I want you to acknowledge that the questions about how the world began are some of the most contentious and hotly debated topics in, inside and outside of the church. As one author notes, no issue has less unanimity among evangelicals. There are, there are many answers and views on this subject. There are as many answers and views on this subject as, as there are aliens to kill when you are playing Halo in legendary mode. And that is to say, too many. There's too many, right? Furthermore, the same author notes that none of the views offered are without real and significant questions. There is no absolute certainty and so, spoiler alert, we're not going to uh, do the deep dive on every various view on creation this morning, nor am I going to end by telling you which view you should embrace. Rather, instead, what I hope to do this morning is give you some principles that should guide you as you think critically about answering the how questions of creation, and I trust that this will be helpful and useful for you as you wrestle with these kinds of things. So as we dive in, principle number one, your answers to the how of creation is not a hill you should die on. Your answers to the question about the how of creation is not a hill you should probably die on. I'm just give you a few reasons for that. Number one, Genesis is not trying to answer the question about how. Genesis 1 is not answering that question. Like I said last week, every book, like Genesis, has an original audience and a purpose it was written to someone for a reason, at a time, in a place. And the same is true of the book of Genesis. What we said last week was that Genesis was written by Moses for the Israelites while they were wandering around in the desert after escaping Egypt. And that is really important for us interpreting how we read this text. You see, put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. You, you're an Israelite. You and your people were incredibly and miraculously brought out of hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. And God promises to bring you to the promised land, but it feels like you are just wandering around in the desert forever. And as you wander around in the desert, you're beginning to lose hope. 
And then you're beginning to forget about the God who you serve and the God who has saved you and rescued you. And you're beginning to forget about who he is and about what he's like. And you're beginning to forget even who you are. And so the questions you are asking as an Israelite wandering around in the desert are not the questions that we are asking when we approach this passage. You're not asking the questions about the how of creation. You're, you're asking the questions about, about God. You're asking, who is this God that led us out into the desert? Is he powerful? Is he faithful? Is he good? Is he worth following? Is he worth living for? Is he worth trusting? Those are the kinds of questions that Genesis is trying to answer. And so God inspired Moses to write these words to remind his people about who he is and what he is like. And so Genesis is God reminding the Israelites. He's saying, this is who I am. This is what I am like. This is why you can trust me. And so over and over and over throughout Genesis, the message of Genesis is simply this. This is our God. This is the God we worship. This is the one we serve. This is who he is. This is what he is like. Come see him. Come worship him. Come trust in him. Come hope in him. See, when we read the Bible and we try to force it to answer questions, it was not trying to answer we're going to pretty quickly put ourselves on ground that is unstable and difficult to robustly defend. Instead, as Tim Keller helpfully writes, he says this, the way to respect the authority of the biblical writers is to take them as they want to be taken. Sometimes they want to be taken literally. Sometimes they do not. And so we must listen to them and not impose our thinking and our agendas on them. That's why I work so hard every week as I study and prepare to teach and preach God's word for you. I work really hard every week to understand rightly what God's word was, who was written to, and why it was written, and the context in which that happened. Because what God's word means has everything to do with who it was written to. And so we want to carefully understand and study that so that we might rightly apply it to our own lives. Additionally, Genesis 1 and the creation account there is not nearly as clear-cut as some might make it out to be. There are a number of Christians who argue that there is only one clear-cut, legitimate conclusion that you can come to about how to interpret these chapters, and and that means that you must read them in a purely 100% literalistic way, that each day in Genesis 1 is literally a a one 24-hour day, and that to arrive at any other conclusion is simply ignorant or willfully disingenuous. And I think that that kind of view is, is just wildly arrogant, actually. Genesis 1 is, very, is a very unique style of literature. As one commentator notes, on the one hand, it's a narrative that describes a succession of events using the characteristics of prose and lacking the key marks of Hebrew poetry. On the other hand, Genesis 1's prose is extremely unusual. It has ref- refrains and repeated statements that continually return as they do in a hymn or a song at the seven-time refrain, such as, and God saw that it was good. And so obviously, this is not the way someone writes in response to a simple request to tell them what happened. So acknowledging this, it would lead us to reading the the Genesis 1 in a way that understands that we're dealing with a prose narrative. That means that we're dealing with the state, it's, it's saying true things. Genesis 1 is making claims about things that actually happened. But it's also a very unique style of prose in which in which imposing a purely literalistic uh, hermeneuticon is just unwise. To say that there is only one obvious and clear way to read this passage is unfortunately unfounded. And I'll just say this. 
a careful consideration of these passages and others like them have led many Christian pastors and leaders who love Jesus and are committed to the authority of the scriptures to hold numerous different views on the specifics of the how of creation. I just want to be clear. Does that, am I trying to tell you that God did not create the world in six days? No, I'm not trying to tell you that. I'm just trying to tell you that that's not the only conclusion you can come to as you faithfully read the scriptures. Additionally, I want to be careful here because as I talk through some of this, sometimes the technical things, what I can accidentally communicate is that you need to be a pastor with extra special training in order, and extra special knowledge to really understand your Bible or to really understand what's true about it or that there's just no way to be sure about what the Bible says. And both of those things are simply not true. Instead, what I'm trying to do is I'm pointing out that some passages in Scripture, they're just a little extra challenging. There's just some nuance in them. They're not quite as black and white as we would love for them to be. And I think Genesis 1 is one of those passages. And that's why it's important for us as followers of Jesus to have an attitude of critical thinking when we study the Bible, but also one of grace as we interact with others around these topics especially others who might land on positions that differ from ours. One last thing I want to highlight before we move on here. No matter how you interpret Genesis chapter 1, you will be left with some real significant questions that just do not have clear-cut answers on them. And I just want to say, it's okay to not have all of the answers. It's okay to not have all the answers. In fact, the danger of needing to always have all of the answers is that sometimes doing that will require you to embrace a blind or unquestioning faith, especially when empirical evidence seems to disagree with you. And that's not what God is looking for. It doesn't honor him. It's not what points others to him. And it's not what honors the goodness of his creation. And this leads us to the second principle this morning as we consider how we answer or how we address the questions of the how of creation. Principle number two is this. The Bible is our final authority on truth, but it's not the only place that truth is found. The Bible is our final authority on truth, but it's not the only place that truth is found. Unfortunately, for many, the study of science and the study of the Bible are seen as irreconcilably different and even often opposing endeavors. They're just things that are at the far ends of the spectrum. But unfortunately, that just is misguided because the simple fact is that all truth is God's truth. Romans 1 and Psalm 19, they teach us that God's glory is revealed as we study his creation and as we see how it reveals him. And so the question we need to wrestle with as we think about answering the, the questions about the how of creation are not if we're going to believe God or believe science, but rather is the question of how are we going to correlate the data of science with the teachings of Scripture? How do, how do those things relate to one another? And in the end, the question is really which one is going to have the final authority? Which is going to have the final call? One author I read this week, he said it this way, the simplest answer to, to figure out how those correlate, he said, the simplest answer for scientists would probably be to say, who cares about scripture and theology? But that fails to do justice to the authority of the Bible, which Jesus himself took with utmost seriousness. And the simple answer for theo theologians would probably just be to say, who cares about science? But that does not give nature its proper importance as the creation of God. Instead, he says this, we must interpret the book of nature by the book of God. We must interpret the book of nature by the book of God. So what does he mean? What is he saying? Well, at the beginning of this year, we did a study talking about the five solas of the Reformation, five theological fundamental doctrines. 
And what we talked about, we spent the first two weeks of that series talking about the doctrine of sola scriptura, which is Latin. It just means it talks about having scripture as our highest authority. We looked at the Bible to be the thing, the final judge, the final call on all matters of truth and faith and practice. What it means is that we measure all truth in reference to God's word. And scripture is the starting point of our investigations into what is true and right and good. And it's the final judge over our findings. And when we disagree, when our experience or our reason or our intellect disagrees with those things, we instead choose to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. God's words is not the thing in error. It is us. And so, just to be clear, having Scripture as our highest authority, what it does not mean, it doesn't mean is that we don't utilize reason or data or science, right? There is a lot of truth that you and I use every day that is not in the Bible. Two plus two equals four. That's not in the Bible. I mean, there's some stuff about fish there, but it's not really the point, right? Like, addition is not the thing that the Bible is telling us, but that is true. You see, instead... What sola scriptura, having the Bible as our highest authority, it means that everything we learn about God and everything we learn about his world, we read in the light of scripture, we interpret it through the lens of scripture. I just want to give you two examples as we think about the question about the how of creation along this line. Number one, when you look at the data and the empirical evidence for how old the earth is, what we find is that the preponderance of evidence seems to really indicate that the earth is very old. People who believe, Christians who believe that the earth is very young, even agree that the evidence seems to indicate that the earth looks very old. The question isn't, do you believe that or not? The question is, is that finding compatible with what the Bible teaches? What I mentioned earlier is that based on our study of Genesis 1, the Bible just does not say how old the earth is because the Bible is not addressing the question of how. It just is not, it's not saying anything about that topic. So is it possible that the earth is very young and God made it look very old? Yes, it's possible. Is it possible that the, that the earth looks really old because it is really old? Yes, it's possible. And that does not conflict with what the Bible teaches. Instead, we arrive at that conclusion not because we're trying to make room for some particular scientific view, but because we're trying to be faithful and true to the text, listening carefully to what it meant and what was intended by what it meant. And it seems as though Genesis 1 is just not trying to answer that question. Another example, were Adam and Eve real historical people, or were they just literal allegorical characters? Were they real, or were they just imaginary? Are they just fictitious people? And the general consensus about, of most modern geneticists is that the DNA evidence indicates two things. One, that humans descended from the same ancestors as the chimp, chimpanzees, and two, that the population of original humans must have numbered around 6,000, meaning... There's no way that Adam and Eve were real, actual people. And there's no way that they were the first humans, even if they were real people. So what does the Bible have to say about that claim? What does the Bible have to say about the evidence? Well, one, we don't have to go, time to go into all of the evidence here, but suffice it to say, what the biblical authors and Jesus himself very clearly and very articulately wrote and believed was that Adam and Eve were real, actual, historical people, and they were the first humans and so the question we have to ask is, were they wrong? Were the biblical authors, were they, were they just wrong? They were real clear that that's what they thought, that's what they believed, and that's what they wrote and lived in light of. So were they wrong? And I think to say that the biblical authors were wrong is just not compatible with a view of the Bible that says that God wrote it. <laughs> it's to say that God was wrong, or that, or that he made an error, or more so that he didn't have control over the writing of his word. 
And those are implications that I think are just not in line with what we know about how the Bible was written and what we know with a high view of Scripture. And so as we look at that data, as Christians who hold to the Bible as our highest authority, we, we have to say we disagree. It doesn't mean that we stick our heads in the sand concerning the latest developments in genetics, but we should recognize that the consequences of trying to alter core doctrines that have strong scriptural backing is a dangerous thing to do. Additionally, there needs to be an acknowledgement of us as Christians that scientific studies should play some role in our understanding and interpretation of God's word. What we learn about God's world should inform, in some ways, how we read God's word. It should affect it in some ways. Otherwise, what's happening is we are veering perilously close to just a blind, simple faith. And what is clear throughout Scripture is that that is not what God is calling us to. God's not calling us to just like, just trust him on a hope and a prayer. God wants us to be Christians who use our minds and our hearts and our heads as we think about what it means to follow him and serve him and honor him. So as Christians, we don't just ignore science and the empirical data or evidence. Also, we don't see it as the ultimate source of truth either. Do you see that, 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 that nuance there? We don't ignore it, but we also do not see it as the ultimate source of truth. Again, everything that we learn about God and his world, it should be interpreted through the lens and the light of Scripture. And that leads us to our final principle this morning, principle number three. The who and the why that Genesis 1 reveals, that informs how we evaluate the different views about creation. The who and the why that Genesis reveals, it informs how we evaluate the, the different views on creation. Genesis 1 might not offer us the kind of clarity that we would like on answering the questions about how old the earth is or exact, the exact process by which everything came about. But there are a number of things that Genesis is very overtly clear about. And the first is this, God created the world. God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis says that God created them out of nothing. There was nothing, and God brought it about into existence. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so any view that does not involve God as the author and the creator of life is not in line with God's word. Additionally, likewise, any view that sees Genesis as simply a myth or just an allegory is not in line with a high view of Scripture and an understanding of God's word. Genesis 1, additionally, it reveals that God, that the God of creation is supremely powerful and he is entirely self-sufficient. He simply speaks and creation comes into existence. There is no opposition. He requires no assistance. And so whether that is in the form of other powers or other forces or even blind luck, and so any views that necess necessarily limit God's power or authority in order to function or that they require him they force God to function inside the bounds of which our understanding is, or they reject in all ways the possibility of the miraculous. They just are not in line with, with the God that the Bible reveals. Now, a lot of the way that you interpret that just has to do with tone and posture as we think about how we answer those questions, which I'll talk about more later. Genesis 1 goes on, it reveals that God, the God of creation is intimately and actively involved in his creation. Genesis 1 verse 2 says, showed us that like a mother bird hovering over her young, God was hovering over his creation. And so any view in which God just hits the go button and walks away or is uninvolved with his creation is not a view that is in line with what the Bible teaches about the character and the nature of God. Genesis 1 reveals that the God of creation carefully and deliberately brought about both habitats and inhabitants. 
Creation is not an accident, nor was it an inevitability. It is the result of God's careful and intentional choice to create. Genesis 1 reveals that the God of creation delighted in his creation because it was good. And so any view that would hold that creation was unfinished or incomplete or flawed from the very beginning is not in line with what the Bible teaches. As we stated above, Genesis 1 tells us that God created Adam and Eve in his image. And so a view that rejects the historicity of Adam and Eve is going to be exceedingly difficult to line up with what the Bible teaches. You see, the Bible must be our highest authority. And the Bible is trustworthy. Notice things I left out. A specific stance about the age of the earth. A specific stance about how long creation took to happen. A specific stance about when creation happened. These things are simply things that the Bible just does not clearly address. There are lots of good arguments from lots of very smart people on every side of these issues. There is room to robustly hold varying positions on these issues and to be faithful to the scriptures and to the, the premacy and the primacy of God's word. And so the question is simply this, where do we go from here? Where should we land when we try to answer the how of creation? I just want to offer a few next steps as we process that. One, you need to look into it more. Don't be ignorant and don't be uninformed. I cannot more highly recommend the book uh, 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution. It's written by uh, two seminary professors, Dr. Keith Lee and Dr. Rooker. It is an incredibly helpful resource, not because it argues for a certain position or because you will have absolute clarity on where you stand after you read it, but because it does a great job of articulating and thoughtfully critiquing many of the positions that are offered. I think it's good because it informs, it will inform your mind as a follower of Jesus and, and inform a, a high view of God's word. But more than that, I want you to hear, I think it, what it will do is help to inform your tone and posture as you think about these things and you relate to others along these lines. Because what is more important, this is so important that you hear this, what is more important than where you land on the specifics of the how of creation is the tone and posture in with which you talk about it. You see, too often the tone and posture around the way this issue gets discussed is marked by hostility or attacks or highly emotional accusations or condescension or just, just pride. And as one commentator referencing James 3 notes, he says, These attitudes are not becoming of the body of Christ, nor are they characteristic of the way of wisdom, which is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty or insincerity. See, it's okay to not have all the answers. It's okay. Just let me... If you haven't heard that yet, it's okay to not have all the answers on the specifics of the how of creation. But it is not okay to be foolish and to be ignorant about it. It's not okay to be foolish or ignorant about it. Blind faith does not honor the Lord and it does not point others to him. To just have your answer always be, ah, I'm not worried about it, God took care of it. That doesn't honor the Lord. It doesn't honor the intricacies of his creation it does not honor others, and it doesn't point others towards him. That is, this, that is not to say, however, that God does miraculous things sometimes. He's capable of doing that. Additionally, it is not okay to skeptically question the faith of everyone who disagrees with you. 
It is not okay to skeptically question the faith of everyone who disagrees with you. I can pretty much guarantee you that people you look up to and respect hold views that you might be surprised by or that would be different than your own. The invitation is to have an attitude of grace and humility as you approach this question. Lastly, it is not okay to be hardline on your specific view. There are many things that I appreciate about many of the different ways that Christians have approached this question. But when Christians approach this question as though there is only one obvious answer to it, and that any other answer is just foolish or disingenuous or ignorant, that is just wildly unhelpful. It is wildly unhelpful as we, think, as we seek to be God's people sent into this world. The honest truth is that there just is not that level of certainty about answering this question. That's okay. It's okay to recognize that the Bible just does not give you 100% certainty around this topic. And the truth is that if you choose to die on this hill, the hill of your specific view, you'll have a hard time meaningfully engaging with people who don't know Jesus yet. You will miss the bigger things that God is wanting to use his word to show you about himself and you will not be able to meaningfully discuss things with those who have different views than you. As we close this morning, what I want you to hear is this. While we may not have all of the answers to the how of creation, our faith does not rise and fall on the specifics of those answers. Our faith does not rise and fall on the specifics about the how of creation. No, it rises and falls on who the creation reveals. And you see, in Scripture... What is revealed is that the person and the work of Jesus perfectly reveals the character and the nature of God. But more than just the revelation of those things, the person and the work of Jesus proves who God is and what he is like. You see, our sure hope and our confidence is found in the person and the work of Jesus who lived and who died and who actually rose again, proving God's power and his authority over life and death and all things. You see, Jesus' resurrection, it was not a hope. It was not a dream. It was not just an idea. The resurrection of Jesus was an, a reality. As we read in small groups this past week in Acts 1, that Jesus, after his resurrection, he appeared and gave, it says, many convincing proofs that he was alive. Church history goes on to tell us that every one of the disciples was sent to a martyr's death because they were convinced. They were convinced about the truths of Jesus. They were not wildly ignorant, nor were they crazy. Jesus had proved to them who he was. Jesus their hope and their confidence was in him. The sureness of their faith was found in him. And their lives were lived for him. You see, in creation, God revealed his nature and his character. And in Jesus, God proved it. That's where our sure hope, that's where our confidence is. As we put our hope and trust in the Bible and in God's work. In communion, what we're doing is we're remembering and we're celebrating that God keeps his promises, that in the beginning God created and that he kept his promise to renew his creation, even in spite of sin, and that on the cross God overcame the curse of sin and death so that we could have life in him. And so when we take communion, the bread, it's a reminder to us of Jesus' body, which was broken for us, as his perfectly lived life was the one that we should have lived. The drink reminds us of Jesus' blood, which was shed for us as he died the death that our foolish, sinful rebellion deserved. And what we're doing is proclaiming the gospel. We're reminding ourselves about who God is, and we are reminding ourselves about what he has done. 
As we do this this morning, it is so important that you understand communion does not make you right with God. It does not change your status or your standing with him. What the Bible is abundantly clear about is that only faith in the person and the work of Jesus does that. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your hope and your faith in Jesus, man, I just want you to hear like, man, I'm so glad you are here. I want you to hear that you are welcome here, no matter where you are at in the process of figuring out what you believe. But since communion is about celebrating and remembering the gospel and our relationship that we have with God because of it, I'd encourage you to to refrain from taking in communion. I don't want you to feel like your actions are out of line with what you say that you believe. Instead, our hope and our prayer this morning is that you, instead of taking communion, that you take hold of Jesus. You see, communion might not be right for you this morning, and that's okay, but Jesus is. And this church and the people that are here, we are. We'd love to join you as you wrestle with those questions, as you think about what, who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. But if you've trusted Jesus this morning and if you believe the gospel, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration, a remembering of, of Jesus proving the character and the nature of God that was revealed in creation. There are two tables in the back of the room, one on the left and one on the right, and you just go during our time of musical worship and you dip the bread in the juice, and that's just how you take communion here at River City. No one will dismiss you. You just go as you feel led. And as you do, I would just encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to give you wisdom as you think critically about his creation and how it reveals and shows who he is. Ask him to inform your tone and your posture as you wrestle with these questions, as you talk about them with others. And ask him to grow you in your confidence in the person and the work of Jesus who proves who God is and what he's like. To that end, let's pray this morning. God, we are so thankful for you, and we are so thankful for your word. Most of all, God, we are thankful for your son, Jesus. God, we are so grateful that our hope and that our confidence of our faith is found in him. God, that he, you, you rose Christ from the dead, and with many convincing proofs, you proved it and showed that he was alive. God, revealing that you are the one who has the power over life, and you are the one who has the power over death, and you are the one, the God of creation, who has created all things and who holds all authority. And so, God, we put our hope and our faith and our confidence, we put it in you. God, we are so grateful for your word. God, help us as we study it over the course of this fall, especially as we look at Genesis. Help us to see you in it. Help us to gaze at you and see your revelation of yourself in your word. God, we pray these things for our good so that our, our love for you might grow, our confidence in you might grow. But God, we also pray them for your glory, that as we live for you and hope in you, that others might come to know and love and follow and serve you. God, for our good, for your glory, we pray. Amen.